All right. Well, good morning. Um, so today um, I sent out the general assignment um, of, of we would kind of review from 8 to 17 um, of chapters 8 to 17 of John. Uh, Mr. Wayne got a little confused about that, you know, when I sent that out. He was like, what? Is it chapter eight or chapter chapter eighteen? But but we're actually trying to review chapters chapters eight to seventeen um, today. If we just do chapters eight to twelve, I think that'd be a little bit better paced. Um, we'll we'll get a lot done, but we'll um won't have crammed the whole thing. We'll pick up the remainder of that next week. Um, at this point in our study of John, we've been in in it over a year, but we've essentially divided um it up into four sections. Um one to four, five to 12. And I had been saying 13 to 18, mostly because in 18, um, Judas and Peter are there in that text. Um, and they start in chapter 13. Um, but I kind of think maybe I'm just going to go with the division of 13 to 17 um, because of the nature of the content, even though 18 does um, um, speak of Judas and um, Peter. Um, I think it starts um, the trial and so much. There's some other characters there in chapter 18 other than G G Judas and Peter, but it, it starts the trial and then we see the crucifixion and the death and burial and then the, uh, the um, resurrection and ascension. So what I want to do with that part is as we go through John and we look at the content, I want to also bring the other gospels and, and notice the things that John doesn't cover and bring the whole picture in and hopefully have our hearts prepared for this Easter um, Passover that when we celebrate that we were overflowing in our heart with, with how we've studied God's word um, overall about the Bible study and a little bit of the pace of, of the change of, of this week, a little bit um, we had a little audible last week, but, but as we spend the next two weeks to maybe three weeks, just kind of reviewing what we've done so far from chapters one to 17 and making sure we're putting the, the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, um, the pace change is, is essentially um, um, we've been, we've been focusing in on, on walking through the text paragraph to paragraph and making sure we understand the text. Um, what I find that's interesting when you interact with people over the Bible is that sometimes we talk past each other and we're not really being effective in how we talk because the content's not fresh. Um, so I think just the action of looking at the text and it being fresh on your mind and not trying to take too much on um, creates some different types of, of conversations and um, some agreement within, within what the scripture actually says. Um, but maybe the problem of that slow walk is that you might miss some of the bigger um, mega themes. I, I, I thought of a simple example with my work at AT&T is uh, I had a um, point in my job where they pulled me out to a different group. And basically I went from maintenance to construction. And so maintenance is eventually uh, is essentially worried about an individual customer. Their phone is not working. And what do we got to do to get that phone working? And that was kind of my world. My, my, my first 10 years of experience in AT&T was just there's a customer, their phone's not working, do what you got to do to get the dial tone working. Um, but in a construction world, you're looking at like a new neighborhood, a developing neighborhood, and you're trying to put those phone services into the neighborhood. Now we're putting fiber into a neighborhood. Uh, but there's a difference between readying an area for a service that you can offer them um, and everything is new 
versus they've had the service and something has failed because the plan is aged. And how do you fix that? My point being is that when I took the time after 10 years of doing maintenance and just trying to find downtown work uh, in the construction side of it, when I went into that, I saw that there was a plan that someone thought out before they put cable into that neighborhood. There was a, 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 a method to the madness. And so as I looked at that and I saw these design plans, it made me a, essentially a better maintenance guy because I was more equipped with with um, going in to do that maintenance. And so I think there's a parallel idea here when you when you talk about reading the Bible, um, when you read it really, really slow and take the time to diligently work through all the different paragraphs in the text. Um, and, and, and that's important, but also some of that speediness, that big pictureness is also important because it puts all those pieces of the puzzle together. And so the more you can, you want to practice getting the paragraphs into your, into your heart. And then you want to ask, okay, once you realize what the paragraph, what the main theme of the paragraph is, you want to say, how does this main theme of this paragraph work with other main themes of other paragraphs? And that becomes a lot of fun, especially in the book of John, because there's sort of, if you want to call it a theme of a paragraph, and then I don't know if this is the right way of saying it, but it's kind of catchy, so it might stick with you, is um, what's the mega theme? So what is the mega theme of the book of John, but what's the theme of the actual chapter that you're reading? What's the theme of the actual section of the chapter that you're reading? And learn to put those things together. What's been a benefit to me, and um, when it comes to writing or grammar in an earthly sense, I am terrible. Uh, my wife is amazing at it, and um, she is always correcting me. Um, it gets exhausting sometimes. But there is a sense of grammar issues with understanding the Bible and to um, growing in the Bible, that's important. And what's been amazing to me in my Christian life is how many people that are amazing grammar-wise in the world with just good good pronunciation and very organized people in the world, and they don't seem to really get the meaning behind the biblical text. And I do think it comes down to a, to a basic grammar idea of these ideas of uh, what's the main thing of the paragraph and how does the main thing of this paragraph interact with the other main things. And so a lot of our talk in Christian life comes down to um, us talking on a verse or an idea or a little theological conclusion we've come. And so that's not actually meet conversation. So I appreciated this group and how much um, you guys have been patient to walk through the text of John. Um, we spent a lot of weeks. I mean, it's it's interesting to scroll down through that podcast list and see, you know, here on this date, we was in this text. And then we were in this, this little section of text here. Um, that's really neat to see that. And so the idea of where we're at today and these ideas of, of spending a few weeks of review is to really take the time and go back and look at what have we what have we put together at this point of taking this invest investing in this chapters one to seventeen. Um, how does all that work? Maybe a great analogy. If you know, I think most people have seen the Karate Kid. Um, it was a very popular show at, at whatever year it came out. But the guy was getting beat up and he wanted to learn karate. And he saw karate being able to learn how to fight as being the solution to his problems because he was getting beat up. 
And um, and his instructor comes and he he makes him paint his, you know, paint his fence, wash his car and so on and so forth and says, I want you to do it this exact way. And so as time went on, the guy got real frustrated, felt like he was just a servant, just doing, you know, his work. And he's like, I need to learn how to fight. What's going on? And then all of a sudden he um, begins to do some maneuvers and by instinct, he begins to defend himself and he realized, hey, this painting this fence and this wax in this car a certain way has prepared my muscle memory to be able to protect myself. And that was an aha moment for him. And so in the same way, um, that's, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Um, we've taken the work to do the fence and wash the car. We went paragraph to paragraph and we've asked those tough questions and we've been patient with God and with his word and with the group and, 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 and done the work of like, what does this actually say? And like Mr. Wayne, we was talking a little bit before we got started. And he said that, that he, he, he began to review eight to 17 and he was like, Oh, we said this. Oh, we said that. And so he began to come into more of a picture by that that dry, that flyover to have more and more realization of just like the Karate Kid that hey I have been learning more than I thought. And so as Christians, as we do Sunday school or Bible studies or whatever we do with with the people that God has connected us with um, in our in our Christian life, we want to to have a group that we 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 do dive a little bit deeper get some roots in us um in those sense so let's uh let's i, I guess i'm going to just kind of throw out there eight to twelve but let me let me start kind of skimming over some of this um let's see jeff did respond to me he says sorry i forgot to send you a text so jeff is in north carolina on vacation um so he he sent me a, a cute picture of, of the youngest one on his on his back I'll send it out to the group when we get a minute. Um, so anyway, um, so let's see. Let me get back to my notes. Um, Keith did. I did want to share Keith. Uh, what did he say that was related to you guys? Um, he's he's um, in Savannah. Both of his girls, uh, daughters are over there and, and they're celebrating birthdays. Um, and um, and he, he basically said, listen to last week's study and couldn't agree more about the divisiveness of man's heart and how it surrounds us. I think Satan can divide a family house. The ripple effects are seen throughout the country. Hope to get in touch with you again next week. So we tried to catch up a little bit this week and he was busy. Um, so anyway, back to let's see. We're back to the text. So I'm going to just say, let's try to see what we can do of going through a review of eight chapters eight to 12 and um i did want to say a little bit about that i know i can't remember the exact date but the goal on my heart was to go through john romans five to eight and then come back and go through john um um eight uh or five five to eight and um and, and as we did Romans 5 to 8 and we walked through that, one of the big things that we did is, is we noticed that Romans 5 to 8 had uh, 98 times that it used sinner death. And we, we tackled the problem and we looked at the issue that Paul, when he was using sinner death in Romans 5 and 8, it was very loving. It was very compassionate. It was trying to help people. And we began to realize that we lived in a, we live in a culture that 
And a lot of our churches, we don't use those words sin and death because they're negative words. And so in a lot of ways, culture has put a muzzle on the church to not use words sin and death because when the words are used, they say you're being mean or you're being ugly. And so we took a time to point out that if Paul in four chapters used sin and death 98 times, it might be something we need to talk about. And even in the context of what he's communicating, he's communicating the gospel in some of the most clearest ways and he's using those words. And so the question was, are we really communicating the gospel um, like we, we, we've we been directed to by scripture if we're not using those words? Are we going to let culture put a muzzle on us in that sense? And so we talked about how we needed to get back to repentance and different things like that. But then at that point, um, Paula recommended that we go to 1 John. And we went through 1 John, and that really challenged me as a teacher because 1 John— um, it just really does some some I don't know if that's hermeneutics, but but he 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 talks in so many different ways. It's just hard to follow up. I mean, we knew that there were some key words he used, but he would be talking about it and then he switched gears to something else. And so it was a great book, but it was it was a hard book to kind of organize and to teach through um, in that way, because it was it was jumping from theme to theme in a sense. And so anyway, that really challenged me as a teacher. Um, a lot of it, when I came out of it, I was like, man, you did a terrible job there. So it really, this idea of like walking through it and then running through it and like getting those 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 perspectives right, um, it really challenged me because I feel like to teach a few verses from John, you almost need to have read the book like a bunch of times and done a lot of, lot of word searches and a lot of outlines and a lot of organizing. It just, it just wasn't a book. I felt like that you could just pick up and just walk through. I, I felt like I lacked in the vision of what the overall picture of John, of first John was. And so anyway, when we, we got through with that, we wanted to navigate to um, what I had originally hoped for was John um, five to eight. And, and I begin to be convic convicted as I started thinking about how to prep John five to eight, I was like, well, we'll do a quick summary of these other things. But then I just said, we, we just need to start at John one. And so we, we did do that. And we spent a couple of weeks in John one and we moved through that. Um, but, but we enjoyed John, John chapter one through four. And it was, it was fruitful. And we got to five to eight. And as I went to five to eight, I realized that, that Jesus starts in John five, he starts by healing a man that had been crippled for a long time. And they begin to challenge his authority and they consider him breaking the Sabbath. And we, what we realize as we read the remainder of chapter five is we realize that Jesus was starting something there. And what that was, was a public debate about who he is. Um, 33 years we say was his life. We say three years was his ministry. And so somewhere in this last three years, the time came for him to to engage with the people and start a public debate and make them start to think, who is Jesus? Who is he? And and so what we see from from five, we see the healing of the man in five. We see the healing of the blind man in chapter nine, and we see the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. So we see these three miracles through this text of five to, ch chapters five to 12. And um and we see um Jesus doing signs of authority and works and wonders and then we see this sorting through and all these conversations of who is Jesus and and they're constantly saying you're saying you're God nobody can say they're God so they're constantly challenging his authority but they're also not recognizing 
53 times, um, John uses the word sent. And, and that word sent, when you, when you pull out those verses that are uh, associated with that, what you see is it's a basic idea that God, just as in the Old Testament, God sent a prophet to lead and guide the people. They had this 400 years of, of, of essentially silence from Malachi to John the Baptist. But Malachi prophesied that there would be a day that a forerunner would come for the Messiah. And so in this debate, he's trying to bring them to a place that that they realize that that John the Baptist is the forerunner and they really never fully get it. They kind of sense that he might be a prophet, but maybe after 400 years, they just lost their discernment or their skills or whatever to recognize that as quick as they did maybe prior to the, the book of the prophets. Um, but whatever the case, um, he's, he's, he's having this debate. And so that's what we see as this theme of 512. Um, one of the things that was interesting is what we call the little while confusing confusion is Jesus, you know, has these little phrases that he does at times, but one of it is like, a little while and you will see me and no more and I will see you, but you will see me again. And <laughs> it sounds like a foreign language. You're like, you're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And um, he does that in chapter seven and eight, um, primarily with the um, with the crowd or with the religious leaders. And then we see him pick it back up again with his own disciples in chapter um, in chapter 13. And so um it's, it's almost as if the disciples are okay with that when he's talking about other people, but when he starts talking about, and you're going to be a part of that, he says, just as I said to the Jews, I also say to you, that created a great bit of anxiety, and we have this personal conversation of the Holy Spirit. And one of the themes that's in our text um, here today in chapter 10 is about Jesus being a good shepherd. And um, one of the things that I know that I pointed out um and as we were looking at the Holy Spirit, as as Jesus says, I'm going to go away, but it's good for you. It's better for you that I go away because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. In that sense, Jesus is leaving because it's his time to leave, but he's being a good shepherd. He's never stopped caring. We talked about how sometimes a pastor says, God has called me to this place or that place. Well, when a pastor does something like that, he's leaving you. He's no longer your shepherd. Y'all's relationship is not going to be on a day-to-day. -day. And that's not really what Jesus is saying. He says, you know, I'm not going to physically be with you but I am going to the right hand of the Father. I will be interceding on your behalf, but it's going to be good for you because we're sending, you know, the Holy Spirit, and that's going to be a game changer for you. Um, and so we'll pick up on, on that a little bit probably next week as we move into that section in review. But I do want to make out that point that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is still being a good shepherd um, because that's one of our themes in this section that we're trying to review this morning. So um, let's let's hit it. Um, big picture overview. In John chapter 8, I sent an outline out that basically broke, broke John um, chapter 8 up into four parts. The woman called in adultery. I am the light of the world, which is one of the seven I am statements that John um, gives in identifying who Jesus is. Um, R.C. Sproul's talks out that there's actually eight of them, meaning in chapter eight, when he says before um, Abraham, I am. So the ultimate I am, um, he says, other than the the different descriptors. Um, but uh, 
but then the uh, he says the truth will set you free and you are of the father, your devil. And before a Abraham, I am. So those are actually five kind of ide ideas that are captured in chapter eight. But what I always think about with eight, I, I love where he says you are of the father, the devil. Um, I don't love it, but it's, it's very shocking and intriguing. But one of the things, you know, that's happening in eight. I think if I ever think of something that I think when we're looking at tying all of the book of John together, that that's important is, um, is, and, and I don't have the verse keyed up and I'm not going to find it right now. It, it's there, but he, he tells them, he look kind of looks them in the eye and they're struggling with different things. And he says, the reason you don't understand, you know, he, he said, the reason you want to kill me is because, my word finds no place in your in your heart. And and basically with a lot of other texts, what's being said here is you have Moses and you are children of Abraham and you you are from David. And so the, the promise of David was that there that the Messiah would come from David and that Israel would always have a king on the throne from the lineage of David. And then the promise that was made to Abraham and their children, they were children of promise. So they get that from Abraham. But but God spoke to Moses to direct this people and gave them rules and instructions. And so on all three of these things, they're struggling with what Jesus is doing. They're thinking, you know, that you're just an ordinary man like anyone else. So this idea that he was before Abraham was crazy. Um, they, uh, they, they, the healing in the beginning of chapter five on the Sabbath. Um, and then I, I'm pretty sure it the 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 nine healing of the blind man was on the sabbath but but this whole breaking of the sabbath is a breaking of a rule of moses how can he be from god this is a struggle point for them and just the authority that he 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 preached from was was difficult for them to accept um i, I forget where the verse is but there's one i think it's at the end of the sermon on the mount in matthew right chapter seven or something but it says it says that it's kind of like the audience is hanging on the words of Jesus. He's taught amazingly. And it says um, he preaches with a, not like the Pharisees, but, but with authority. I think I'm butchering that up a little bit, but, but Jesus, the way he spoke, the way he taught was just straight off the cuff from authority. And that could be unsettling for people that, like, who do you, basically, who do you think you are? I mean, that's what we see in John chapter 5, 16 to 18 is, is, is their, their, their biggest critique. They're not really thinking about that. This man was, was broken and, and someone was able to heal him. Someone was able to restore his health. They're not really thinking about the miracle of that. They're just thinking that, that first of all, he's doing this on the Sabbath. And so they're such, they become such a slave to the law of Moses, um, that there's it's choking the life out of them. I love when Jesus, when they're when they catch him and the disciples are eating on the Sabbath, and they see that as breaking the Sabbath. And he makes that statement. He says, He says, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for for man. And and so that's what's happened here is they've made the law of Moses and not working on the Sabbath. They've they've enslaved themselves, they've put themselves in a prison by that. And so Jesus is just eating because he's hungry, not, you know, or his disciples are not because they're 
out there trying to break the law or, or work in a, in a, in a, um, a bad way. Um, and then, you know, so anyway, um, so back to this text with the woman caught in adultery, of course, some texts say that wasn't in there and you can go back and listen to the podcast. We, we had some interesting thoughts in there and we, we had some interesting hermeneutic thoughts. Um, you know, some says it's in, some says it's out. And we just looked at the text as a paragraph. We looked at the main theme of it and we asked the question, is this theme consistent to the what, what we know Christ to be from other texts? And we concluded that whether it's in or it's out, it's not promoting anything that is not consistent with the character of Christ. Now, it depends on how you unpack that paragraph, because I'm sure some people have pulled things that are kind of odd out of that that paragraph and and if they base that odd belief on that text and that might bring into question um um the credibility of of, of what they're doing because this text is that is that question but as long as you're reading that text and it's consistent and it's collaborated with other parts of scripture in my opinion you're 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 good um and then We've we've talked a little bit about Jesus's authority, but I, I want to remind us again um, in chapter five, um, nineteen to twenty nine, and also um, in chapter twelve, as we ended up, um, yeah, I think it's forty two to fifty or something like that. We've talked about five things that I think are the key, are our five key um, breadcrumb trail, trail breadcrumb trails that Jesus points us to. Not that there's not other ones, but but it's unique how he he opens this five to twelve um, um, conversation or dialogue with essentially these five ideas, and then he closes. Um, chapter 12 with these five ideas and these five ideas are the main one is sent and so what we're calling this a breadcrumb trail is that if you search the word sent throughout the the gospel of john and look at those texts a few of them are about john the baptist and you know you can kind of take those out but 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 even john the baptist is relative to god is sending his messenger and this is how you'll know that this messenger is from God. And so we were supposed to test someone that proclaimed to be a prophet um, or plain, or, or if they proclaimed they had a word from God or a message, you know, this idea of, 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 of battle and war of the Old Testament, they would send runners and messengers to come deliver, you know, these messages. And so that's what John is claiming that he is there to do is, is to prepare a message from God that's what Jesus is doing in the way that Jesus does it. And so when we see those those texts of sent, um, we see that throughout the Gospel of John, it's pointing us to something. And it's always saying the same thing. And it's something that you don't catch if you're distracted by the other parts of the text. Um, the other things are judge and authority. Who does Jesus have the right to judge? Um, so that's a that's a you can search the word judge and you can kind of look at at the uh, the back and forth conversation with that authority. Does he have the authority to do what he's doing? Can he heal on the Sabbath? Can he can he teach um, with authority? Like is he better than the Pharisees and the religious leaders? Stuff of that nature. That's a thread that's there. But the other two 
that are probably, in my opinion, the main ones is life and light. And when I think of those two, the main idea is that without Christ, you have no life that we're talking about. When we're talking about being born again, we're talking about Christ. He's the author of life and he's the giver of life. And so without a relationship with Christ, you don't know real life. You can't define it. He defines it for you and he gives it to you. And so everything changes when the author of life gives you life. And we see that in his interaction with different people through the, the book of John. But light speaks to there. There's one thing to have life to breathe, but you could still be blind. And so light is 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 opening your eyes and the re revolution of uh, revelation of seeing things. So what I think is so cool of the story of of um, nine um so you start off with this blind man and he gets healed. If, if you if you just hang out in chapter nine for a while and you watch the dialogue, I think one of the most interesting thing is that I think Jesus takes a guy that probably had essentially no religious um, perspective in his life. He's he's I guess it said he was I don't know if it said he was 40 years old, but he's an old man and he's been blind all his life been born blind. I don't see in any sense that the religious leaders were like, Let's help a poor blind man. Let's bring him food. Let's build him a house. You know, let's give him a massage. Like, I don't think they were, I think they just seen him as an outcast, cursed by God. And and so here's a man, he's lived most of his life, probably with very little love and affection and friendship and all this kind of stuff. And so God opens his eyes. And for him, life is sort of, in a lot of ways, just started, just starting. And it's starting with Christ. And so what I think is interesting is this miracle, just like uh, a lot of when, when Jesus said, he said, you, 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 um, in John 4, 48, he said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And so there's this tremendous amount of people that are believing or not believing or being upset or whatever over signs and wonders. But there's always underneath that a very plain thing. And like for this guy, the practical thing is I, I couldn't see. Now I can see. And so life is starting for him. Um, and, and so we, as we're talking about these last two, life and light, um, we're talking about Jesus giving life and in, and in giving sight. And in nine, we're focusing more specifically on his ability to give sight. But for this guy, while he has a sense of life, he's had a life without sight. And so now he's getting some sight. And so for a lot of ways, life is starting for him. And what's interesting, we saw this with this guy. And we saw it with John the Baptist in the beginning when they were persecuted and they were questioned about what they were doing or why they were doing or why such and such. You know, maybe the basic question was, why did God heal you and not me or not this person? You know, it could have been some of this, but but he is the the, the individual, the bond man is being essentially persecuted. So life is starting for him in one sense, but he's being persecuted in another sense. And what's interesting in chapter nine is you see him sort of maturing or evolving in his understanding of what has happened to him and who Christ is and, and who God is and how he works and what he's doing. And so he becomes, I think at the end, an excellent evangelist, or an, a, maybe a better word is an excellent apologist. Um, they're asking him to give a defense of, 
of his his faith, but but he don't know what faith really is yet. He just knows that he can see. It, it's it's later in the story that he recognized who Jesus was and that he is the Messiah and so on and so forth. But before all that, he's being he's being challenged. How did this happen? How did he do this? He's got to be of the devil. Is, is these questions and and so he's logically saying, how can he be of the devil? Why would the devil ever do anything like this? So he's he's facing, you know, real questions. Um, so I know I spent a lot of time, and that is one of the chapters for us to review. But but out of these mega themes, scent is the most popular. Is important. Judge and authority as 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 who who do you think you are to judge me is a question we still have today. Who do you think you are to say this or do that? Those were ch challenges that Jesus faced in making himself known to mankind. Um, and then who is Jesus? He is the author of life. There is no life in us apart from him. And he is the one that opens our eyes and removes the scales so that we can see beyond um, earthly things, but into heavenly things. And we can see not just the whole world through fleshly, practical, um, physical eyes, but that we can have our eyes open to spiritual eyes. So in that chapter nine, the way it ends up is there's a back and forth about two verses between um, Jesus and the Pharisees. And they say, are we blind too? They kind of say, give him a smart aleck answer. And he said, well, if you wouldn't say, if you weren't saying you could see, then you wouldn't be guilty. But since you say you can see, you're guilty. And when they're claiming this, this I can see, they're claiming it by earthly physical eyes. They're putting their hope in earthly physical principles. And so the message of grace, of, um, uh, of compassion um, in chapter nine is that I am, I think we just read one, um, I am the, what it was, he said, I am the light of the world. Well, this is what I'm talking about. Um, light opens our eyes to see what's before us. And um, and so so um, and that was in chapter eight. But that was kind of in one sense when we're putting these things together, that's preparing the way for what's actually physically happening in nine, where he actually gives a guy um, sight. And then the Pharisees are saying, you know, they're still rejecting that light in the sense that what you said, we're blind too. And so the Pharisees are trusted in what they can do in the, in the power that they, the life power that they have in this world. But Christ, when we're talking about being born again, he's giving you a different type of life that compares that, that, that doesn't compare to the life that we were given at physical birth. Doesn't compare to the life we're given at spiritual birth. So, uh Let's see, we, we kind of hit eight and nine. I, the next one, 10, it gets in a good shepherd. So any thoughts, Mr. Wayne? Um, I'll pause for a second before we hit into nine. Um, I'll bring eight back into to that idea of the word um, and how that relates to 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 all of this, the light of the word and the shepherd. But but any any thoughts on what we said so far? You want to jump in a minute? Well, yeah, uh, you know, um, it, it all reflects back to what you were saying about big picture and, and, and individual verse and seeing the big picture and all this stuff. But um, um, you know, when Jesus says, I'm the light, he is, he is 
what makes us aware of our, of our spiritual life. Um, we, we were just, like I said, the, the HPC is doing this thing on, on soul. And um, most people, their soul is a darkness that they don't have any light in. They're not, a, 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 I, I like the word, to define light, I like awareness. In other words, we, we are born and all, the only thing we're aware of is what we what comes into our senses and, and the only thing we're aware of is our own eyes and our own body and our mind, our mind. And and our mind is totally unaware of the fact that God breathed the soul, gave us a, a living um, spiritual being inside of us that we are totally unaware of. And Jesus, when he says, I am the light, he is the spark that causes our soul to realize we are much more than just created animals running around here on this earth. So when you talk about, when you read the Bible, if you read the Bible from perspective of God, and uh, everything in the Bible has a godly purpose, which is totally different from a human purpose, then you then your eyes are open, your spiritual eyes are open, not your, not your physical eyes, they both got to be open. The mind balances between the spirit and the and the uh, body, the self, the flesh, as Paul called it. So all of this is about awakening the spirit in the disciples and making them realize that they they have a godly purpose on this earth, not just not just a life purpose. Yeah, but that's the whole transition that Jesus is going through awakening the spirit in, in his disciples. And so that when, when he does send them, that, he, that he's sending the spiritual self out into the world. Um, well, and, and when you read, when you read the Bible, when you read the first time and you only understand the physical things, you forget about uh, the Bible is, is God's tool for awakening your soul, giving you light in your soul. Yeah. So, um, so as I was thinking there, so, you know, when we think about our, our life and our body, we need to be able to see. Um, but, but one of the things we need to be able to hear too. Um, I've been thinking about something I may have shared this last week, but there's a, um, I was listening to some things and um, someone was talking about the tone of your voice. So I guess I'm bringing the mouth into it. We've talked about the eyes, the ears. So we'll, we'll talk about the mouth a second too, but, but what you're doing with your mouth affects what's happening with your ears. And so what this person was specifically saying is that for the most part, when you talk in a high pitch voice, it's, it's of urgency. It, it may be like, it's encouraging someone come on we need to get going um it's a fire um you better not look at me like that like we do all that in a high-pitched voice when we start um and it's just anxiety or it's intensity when we start talking in what he calls a late light dj voice like hey girl what you doing you know when you bring that 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 voice down into a, a deeper voice a calmer slower voice you're 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 bringing a more calmness but what's happening with your ears is the the higher the pitch of your voice 
And a lot of times your ears are not listening in a sense. I'm not saying you can't be in an intense situation and still hear, but in a sense, based on maybe what's happening in your mind, you've already made a decision. So like if you're screaming and you're trying to pull people out of a burning building, it's not as if you're not listening and you don't, Oh, there's a child over here. We got to get to that one. It's not as if you're here in that way, but your, your, your theological philosophical debating and, and open-mindedness has shut off. We've got to act. We've got to act right now. And time is of the essence. And so your voice, what, what there's, as your voice is, where are you at? Where are you at? You know, as your voice gets a high pitch, What's happening to your ears has been narrowed down and it's very slim what's going on. When you're saying, where you at, where you at? You're listening, you're listening, but you're listening for any kind of cry. I'm over here, you know, and then you're res you're responding to that. But when you get into that DJ voice or whatever, your, your ears almost get wider and they listen more. So I'll give you an example. When a bunch of college campus kids are protesting, they're not listening. They're no longer taking in information. They're not 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 uh, observing what is the right way to to think through this. And we see that in theolo theology too. We can get so locked down um, in our denomination or theological church beliefs that we can't. Our ears have the holes have been shrunken down to a point they can't receive any kind of new information. And, and, and when we do process that new information, we need to be in that relaxed DJ voice state where we're like, huh, interesting, you know, okay, you know, we just need to, to process the data. Um, but we need to have times where we process data and we need to have times where we say, all right, like when there's a fire, we need to be ready to move and save lives. I mean, the, the thinking has been done. We've prepared for this. Now it's, you know, it's time to act. But we, we prepare. And we are open-minded. And then, but anyway, back to, back to this. Yeah. So that's the, what I mean, and I have a bad way of saying things with words, but that's what you, that's what I'm saying to you is that uh, when we read the Bible, we got to be excited about what the spirit is talking to us about, not what our mind is saying, not, not the physical world. We got to put the physical world aside and see God's purpose. It's God speaking to us. And we, I mean, it's easy for us to just say, oh, these are just words on a piece of paper and not God speaking to us. Yeah. So I want to I want to finish up today with John 10 about the good shepherd. And so in John 10, um, well, I was going to say the, the first 16, the first uh, 20, I think we taught this when we taught John 10. We did it in two parts. We did verses one through 21 and 22 to 42. Um, three parts of the first section, one to 21, was one to 16 talks about how Jesus is a good shepherd. 17 to 18 talks about how he lays his life down for the sheep um, and that he has the total authority and freedom to do it or not do it. Um, and then 19 to 21, actually brings us back to what we just talked about division over the blind man. Um, but bringing in eight, which was the first part of it. And I want to bring this, this one idea. So what's happening in eight is there's three main things and, and it's not fully described in eight, but this is ultimately what's happening. 
is they they have three main players that they're putting their hope in Abraham, Moses, and David. And all three of those people are uh, the audience in chapter eight. All three of those people have specific, unique um, areas of, of the of reason why they're putting that hope into it. So for Abraham, he was the son of prom, you know, or the, the promises to him. The son of promise was Isaac, but, 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 but through the Abraham and his, of God's covenant that he made with Abraham, they're claiming those, 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 those promises of that covenant. Um, based on the relationship with David, um, that God's covenant with David, that a man would all, that, that uh, there would always be a ruler on the throne of Israel um, in the lineage of David, they're claiming that promise that God is faithful to keep that covenant. And then they know that God spoke through Moses and gave them the law and the instructions of how to, how to be. Um, so all three of these people, well, what Jesus actually does is he comes in as a teacher um, sort of surprisingly to them, he kept, catches them off guard a bit, but he dismantles all three of those people that essentially they did not really know the kind of faith that Abraham had. They did not really know um, how the Messiah would be the son of, of, of David. The apostles deal with that a little bit more in Acts. We'll try to come back to that at some point. But they didn't know the law of Moses. So Moses, when God delivered the law through Moses, there was an intent to it. And they didn't really understand the intent. Traditionally, if we would bring an Acts, Acts passage in, they weren't Bereans. They weren't good studies of the word. And so a lot of their weaknesses and understanding was because what had been given them, they didn't really understand. They really didn't understand why God made a promise with Abraham. They really didn't understand what the law actually meant given by Moses. And they didn't really understand um, the um, how the Messiah would, would come through David and how he'd be a king and what kind of king he would be. He didn't really understand. And so Jesus is trying to, as the Messiah, the, the woman said, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything to us. He's trying to do that. He's trying to bring them back to you don't understand Moses. You don't understand Abraham. You don't understand the promise to, to, to David. So he's bringing them back to these things that they placed their hope in. And he's trying to help them to understand that. And, and one of that is the opening of the eyes is the opening of the ears. Um, so I'm trying to think of how I was trying to leave this. Um, so, so back to the good shepherd, um, so in cha chapter eight, that's what I was trying to say. So in chapter eight, he dis he's he's essentially working through the most significant description description of a point in time of of where he's dismantling this because he works through at the top of it. He had been working through you don't even follow the law of Moses. So he's directly saying you're the one that's the lawbreaker of Moses that you're placing your hope in, not not I. He in the chapter eight says. Show me what sin I have committed. 
So they have like the 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 idea that he must have committed a sin, but they can't really pin it down that he is actually committed a sin. But then when he says, um, you'll be free, and they begin to go in the debate and they say, we've never be free. We're children of Abraham and all that. He begins to talk about spiritual slavery. He says, you're anyone that sins is a slave to sin and, and these kind of things. So he's trying to expand their mind, like, because the intent of the law was greater than one of the reasons they don't understand the true intent of the law is because they've under underestimated the intent of the law. So the intent of the law was not just to free the, free them from physical powers, but from spiritual powers. And so when he takes that conversation to the fact that, that uh, if you sin, you're bound you know, to sin, but, but sin makes us stupid because they were actually oppressed by the Roman government there. So they weren't free like they were in the promised land, but somewhere in their logic, they had concluded that they were never slaves. And so all of this, he's trying to wake them up to think they don't realize the craziness of what they say, but, but they want to kill him. They're aggravated with him. He's public enemy. Number one, they're very frustrated with him. And he says, the reason you want to kill me it's because ultimately my word has no place for your heart. So if God has given a word to a messenger and that messenger has showed up on your doorstep and he's telling you that and you don't like the message and you're like, go on, get out of here. You know, um, your spirit is angry with it. It's 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 the, the message that he's delivering is is repulsive to you. If that is the reality and that messenger is from God, then you're repulsed by God. And that's what he's laying out to them is that you have been religious. You claim to be Israel. You claim to be the people of God. But ultimately, you have no place for God's word. The reason you don't know that that I've come from God is because you don't even know God. You don't even love God. You haven't seen him. Your God is the devil. He's a liar and a hater and a killer from the beginning. He's always been that way. It's his nature. He can't do nothing else other. And that's how you are. That's the God you're serving. That's the God you want to be. And so what a what a condemnation there in eight. But I want to go back to, to, let me just read this, and I'll try to finish up with some, some scripture here. It's in chapter 10. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Now, when you think of this in context, that's what these religious leaders had been doing. The religious leaders that were in control at the time of Jesus were basically thieves and robbers. They were coming in and and tending to the shock or, or the, the 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 not the the sheep. They were tending to the sheep the way they wanted to intend and wanted to tend to them. Not the way that God had had called them to tend to them, but the way they wanted to attend. And so they were thieves and robbers. They were hirelings. But he goes on, he says in verse two, but he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hears his voice and calls his own sheep by his name and leads them out. So this idea that he's talking about is that those that love God, those that understand Abraham, those that understand um um Moses and the ten of the law. Those that understand the, the, the what did what did God say about David that was the most famous thing is he said, "I will I will put a man that 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 um that's I'm, I'm butchering this up. I can't come to that's but has has a heart after me. Um, I, I know I'm not saying that phrase right, but but David had a heart after God. 
Um, and, and, and so if the people like David had a heart after God or they had faith like Abraham, or they understood the original intent of what the instructions were that Moses gave them, then they would be able to hear the voice. They would, they would be attuned to it. They'd be on that wavelength. They'd be on that channel. Um, I was reading just to give you a better scenario with Moses and how I'm trying to say this is that because faith and heart, we understand those things, but with Moses, because it's law um, and the intent of the law, it might get a little more, um, more confusing, but I'll give you a story here. So going through John six in another Bible study, we were reviewing the, the the second part of John six as as he's talking to the people and they're going away, and he's talking about I'm the bread of the life, and he said unless you drink of my blood and eat of my flesh, we were going back and we did this in this group too, but we were going back to um to Exodus twelve when they did when when Moses initiated the Passover supper. And, and as you're looking through how he initiated, there was actually some specific um, things that he put there that probably most of us are not super familiar with. I wasn't super familiar with, but you can go read 12 and you can see these specific things that they do. But I was looking at some captions, uh, trying to better understand a few of the concepts there. And it led me to Josiah. Now, to be quick, Josiah was the last king that brought revival to the people of judah before they were exiled but what this text says is it says and it's it's some language that's being used there that anytime passover is talked about all throughout the bible but the specific unique details that were incorporated in moses initiating the the framework of the passover um basically um that was not um covered elsewhere in the bible so the only other time it's picked up again is in josiah when when he held the passover in this season of revival what's interesting about that is so what josiah said is when the book was brought to him and he read it he's his eyes we're talking about light we've been talking about light and blindness the the veil was removed from his eyes and he had an aha moment and he said, I realize why we're having so much friction as a nation. It's because we've abandoned God and he brought people back to God. And not only did they just come in a sense of their heart back to God, they they yield, they surrendered their self as slaves to God by the instructions that was in the law of Moses. And so what I'm saying here is this is important to notice that from Exodus 12, when the intent was given on the first Passover, there's no indication that it was fully followed out to the nth degree like Moses initiated until the time of Josiah. Now, if, if it only happened at the first Passover, and essentially probably in one sense the last significant Passover before they were ex exiled, that's pretty important. And I, I'm talking about the main details, but what I'm talking about here is the intent. Did they understand the intent of the law? And the answer was no. So they were they were sheep without a shepherd. That was why Jesus was compassionate to him. And his work was cut out on those issues, getting them to the point that they could fully understand what why God chose Abraham or why he chose David or, or why he, he he ministered through Moses. Um so, so anyway, I, I know we're out of time here, 
Um, I would just say as, you know, we may touch back on the good shepherd, but I, I think, um, you know, next week uh, we'll kind of fill, fill our way through that. But, but I think the main thing with the good shepherd is do you hear the voice of God? And, and that's the distinction. When you look at eight, these people that were um, nauseated by what Jesus had to say was because of these reasons that we've talked about. But one of the things they couldn't hear it um, in Stephen, if you get into Acts, I think it's whatever, chapter six, I think. But this picture of where they they were, they they after he gave his message. They were so frustrated with him, they couldn't listen anymore. And like when you hear God's word, does it draw you in or or do you say, please stop talking? Like one of my concerns about churches today of how much, how little scripture they use um, in some cases. I mean, what does that say about the appetite of the people that are filling the pews about God's, God's word? Um, because. God's written word is very similar, if not exactly the same as what Jesus was saying. And so if the audience of John 8 said enough of your words, how many churches today are saying enough of the Bible? You know, how many churches have become so pragmatic um, that and, and they're they're so lazy to dive in and come to the deep understanding of the words that they've abandoned the word of God for their 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 quick um, um, theologies or theories or ideas or whatever. Um, how much is the church today actually like the pharisaically led church that had come up with all these other ideas that were out of step with the original tent and the original instructions and guidance of God, you know, how, how far have we, have we drifted? And I think the answer to that is right here in the word of God. It, it comes from people coming back and saying, what, what did, what was Jesus leading us in? What was he guiding us in? So and I know we're out of time, but that was the, the one thing I, I did. We we did talk a lot about the eyes. We talked about the life, the light. We talked about the place of the word. Um, so we'll, we'll just kind of pick up like, maybe like 10, 11, 12 next week. Let me try one more comment about what I'm, the point I'm trying to make. You know, you talked, you asked about what was going on and why he was addressing the Pharisees. The, the church of that time, the Pharisees, the temple, were worshiping the people, Abraham, uh, Isaac, Isaac uh, Jacob, and, and David. They were worshiping the people, not the God that created them, but God that, that was behind them. And, um, uh, you know, we, we've got to be aware. I don't think it's happening for us, but we got to be aware that we don't worship the Bible. We worship the author of the Bible. And we don't want to fall into that same Pharisee type attitude where all that matters is the, the word and, and the law and, the, and how we're supposed to behave and not what our relationship with God is. And I don't, I don't think we're going to get as bad as they were, but um, they were so into worshiping Abraham that they forgot to worship God. They just left God out of everything. Yeah. And we can't do that. Well, Shane, are you there? You have any comments? Are you just listening? So we've had Shane on the screen. We'll give him a moment to see if he wants to jump in before we get off. 
All right. Well, if he's not going to jump in, um, thank you, Mr. Wayne, for being the super most faithful person that we, we hey, have. I appreciate you. Morning means a lot to me. Appreciate you. Um, and thank you, Shane, for, for listening in. And hopefully the other guys will, will listen in. But we'll spend a few more weeks with these reviews um, just to kind of kind of hit hit this pace. Um, I've, as a teacher, loved when we can go fast. Uh, but I, I've enjoyed the the work we've put in um, of walking through the paragraphs. And um, and so while this is still somewhat fresh on our mind, I want us to have a good review before we jump into um, the trial um, death and, and resurrection and all that. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get to that soon though. Um, let me close the prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this time together. We, um, thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Um, we thank you that you save us, um, that without you, there is no hope. Um, we just, uh, we just take a moment to recognize the, the, the vast richness of, of that gift and the vast richness of, of the mercy and compassion that you showed um, through that. That if, if, if you did nothing else for us, um, that would be enough. That would be more than we ever would deserve. And so, Lord, I just thank you for all that you've done. I ask you to be with us, lead us and guide us, be with us as we go to church, be with pastors all across the land that um, just, just get a hold of their heart. And um, and let them um know that that they they are your your, your servant that um uh, that they're your messenger that that they're they're calling their purpose the fact that you've put them in that position that they're in it's for a reason and it's to deliver your message not their message but your message to your sheep it's not their sheep it's your sheep it's not their children it's your children and so lord i ask you that um as we've had so many distractions with social media and and and, and wars and rumors of wars and every other kind of thing lord i just ask you that you would be compassionate to america and to the world and that you would take pastors that have forgotten what their role is um as as a shepherd um, tending, tending to the, your sheep, um, on your behalf that, that you would remind them who they are in you and what their role and calling is, um, as a pastor, as a teacher, um, for us that just evangelize and disciple that, that we realize that the most effective evangelism discipleship is by doing it the way you've called us to do it. And so I just ask you, Lord, that you just move a spirit of repentance and holiness on our hearts and that you would draw us into your presence and that the words uh, will come alive more and more, that our eyes will be open more and more, that our ears will become channels that, um, that receive um, your wisdom and, 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 and learn to filter out the noise of this world. And Lord, I just ask all this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, we all have a good day. And if you need anything, let me know.